Hello, and welcome to the Two Guys, Four Balls podcast. All right, welcome to the Two Guys, Four Balls podcast. Uh, Today, you know what time it is. We're going to jump right into it. This is the recap for conference championship weekend. Uh, Going into this weekend, we expected two heavyweight clashes. We got one. So uh, without further ado, let's get right into uh, the lesser of the matchups first. Of course, in the first game, we've got the Philadelphia Eagles advancing to the Super Bowl, cruising to a 31-7 win over the San Francisco 49ers. And, you know, it's a shame how this game turned out. I said on last week's episode, this was the matchup I was looking forward to. I felt like these two teams, the Eagles and the 49ers, separated themselves from the rest of the conference a long time ago. I talked about, you know, Hurts being 15-1 and this year, Purdy being 7-0. You got two of the hottest teams in football, pretty much the two hottest teams in football, going right at each other. I expected it to be a pretty entertaining game, and we didn't get that at all. Uh, starts early in the game with uh, the Devontae Smith catch down the field on fourth down. And I use the word catch extremely loosely. 49ers, you got to challenge that. There's no way around it. You have to challenge that play. There's too much at stake. Again, it's a fourth down. If they overturn it, they lose the ball. It's, it's not like they get another chance. It's not like they get more opportunities to convert. They lose possession of the ball if you win the challenge. If you lose the challenge, you know, they're probably going to score from there either way. The Eagles, once they get inside the 10, get inside the 5, with the way they run their offense in that range, they're probably going to score a touchdown. So you had to challenge that play. You don't give up a touchdown to start the game. Then we have where the game completely turned, and that's when Brock Purdy gets his arm hit. Suffers the elbow injury. Fumbles on the play. Wasn't initially called a fumble, but the challenge flags worked for one team, apparently. And then going back to the 49ers, how they should have challenged, that one's not on Kyle Shanahan. And I understand that it's easy to jump on playoff Shanahan based on what we've seen over the years. I know that's the first thing people want to do. And there were certainly opportunities in this game to jump on Shanahan, but not for this. You're supposed to have guys in the booth ready to say, hey, hey, coach, somebody, challenge this play. The 49ers, they didn't have that for whatever reason. And, again, you can say that, like, the angles weren't right for the replays and they didn't see it at first. Again, it's still worth the risk to challenge it, even if you couldn't clearly see it initially. Uh, You have to go by the fact that Devontae Smith, even his reaction wasn't a reaction of somebody who was short and caught the ball. So all that comes into play. And somebody has to step in and challenge that play. So the 49ers don't challenge to start the game off. The Eagles do challenge. And now we have a game that looks like it's going to be a blowout from the very beginning. Now, I do have to give the 49ers defense some credit here. Because after Purdy gets injured and ultimately is ruled to have lost the fumble, the 49ers defense came out and forced three straight punts. 
including a punt on that possession where the Eagles were getting the ball at midfield and looked like they could have put this game away within the first 10 minutes of the game. So the defense hung in there and stayed in there for as long as they could and stayed in there long enough for the 49ers eventually to get down the field and score to tie the game on a drive that was basically engineered all by Christian McCaffrey. The Eagles finally respond. Their offense starts to get to a little bit of a rhythm. They have a 20-play scoring drive to take the lead back at 14-7. At this point, this is where I do have to blow the whistle on Kyle Shanahan. And your defense was just out there for 20 plays. You don't have your starting quarterback. You know you're probably not going to get him back. Why Josh Johnson continues to get jobs in the NFL, I don't know who he has dirt on or, or what's going on there. But Josh Johnson, who shouldn't be in the league, is your backup quarterback. Randy's your fourth-string guy. But that's your option. So you have Josh Johnson, someone who's shown throughout the game that he's not comfortable back there, someone who had three delay game penalties throughout the game, so he wasn't even comfortable getting plays off, let alone running them. Down 14-7, a minute 36 left in the first half. With everything that went wrong for San Francisco, just go in the half down 14-7 and regroup and figure out what your game plan is going to be for the second half. But no. See, these coaches... They got to prove to you that it's their system. They got to prove to you that they're geniuses, that they're so smart. So now Kyle Shanahan feels the need to prove to you, oh, I can get a two-minute drive going with Josh Johnson. And what happens? He fumbles the ball without being touched. He fumbles the snap. And then after he fumbles the snap, he has a chance to recover it and can't do that. So he gives up. he gives the ball up. Hassan Reddick comes up with the fumble recovery, and Hassan Reddick, which is all over the place in this game, as he has been all season long, give that man his credit. A legitimate defensive player of the year candidate, as far as I'm concerned. He's also the guy who knocked Freddie out of the game. So, I mean, Hassan Reddick, you can make the case he was a player of the game in this game. And now all of a sudden, that same 49ers defense that just came off the field for a 20-play scoring drive, so you know they're exhausted, especially with the majority of that being runs from the Eagles, has to go right back out and try to make a stop again, which they couldn't do. So now instead of being down 14-7 and a half, you're down 21-7. By the way, the 49ers got the ball back with about 10 seconds left, and they still tried to run plays with Josh Johnson. Get the message. It's not going to happen. So it could have easily been 28-7 if Johnson had turned the ball over again. They were very fortunate to go into half down 21-7, but I just didn't understand the need to put the ball in Johnson's hands at the end of the first half when you could have just easily gone into half 14-7 and then just hope for some type of fluke play to tie the game. I said after that Josh Johnson fumble that for the rest of the game, I would have had Christian McCaffrey at quarterback. And I don't know why the 49ers didn't seriously explore that. And I know you don't practice a straight wildcat offense, but that was your best chance. You had no chance with Josh Johnson. Like I said, he, he couldn't even get the plays off in time. I would have had McCaffrey at quarterback, and he would have been my wildcat quarterback. 
I would have had him and Debo Samuel in the backfield a lot. And I would have mixed in Jordan Mason. I've talked about Jordan Mason on this podcast a few times. I don't know what he's done. He's the anti-Josh Johnson. I don't know what Jordan Mason has done to stay off the field. All season long, Mason has averaged six yards a carry. So for me, I would have had McCaffrey back there, Samuel back there, mixed in some Jordan Mason, and tried to win the game that way. They don't do it. They stick with Josh Johnson. Johnson goes out early in the third quarter with a concussion off of an Indomitian Sioux hit, which was a clean hit, by the way. Even though it's Sue, what his reputation in history is, but clean hit that knocked Johnson out of the game. So now you really should go wildcat with Christian McCaffrey. You really should figure out a way to get Jordan Mason involved. But what do you do? You bring Brock Purdy back in. Are you serious? Brock Purdy, the same Brock Purdy who told you earlier in the game on the sidelines, I can't throw the football, coach. You put him back in the game. Same Brock Purdy who basically couldn't feel his arm from the elbow down. You put him back in the game. When Purdy came back into the game, initially all he could do was hand the ball off him, left-handed. Why? Why would you put Purdy in that situation? Purdy is the guy who we've been told over the last two months is all of a sudden now the future of this team. You know, you have plenty of people telling me, oh, they need to trade trade Lance down and all this other stuff. Why is that quarterback being put in more danger? And then you had the nerve as the game went on and got more out of hand to start asking Purdy to throw the ball a couple times, knowing he couldn't even throw the ball to the line of scrimmage. And then after the game, oh, we hope his UCL isn't all the way damaged. Well, if it wasn't, you sure finished it off in the second half by putting it back in the game. What are you doing? In a game that you had no chance to win, you risked that man's future. For what? So I had a major, major problem with that. But yeah, once, once that happened, this game was over. The Eagles didn't have to score more than 10 points in the second half to make this basically a blowout. So just a disappointing result because of what the expectation for this game was as far as competitiveness. I picked the Eagles to win. I felt like their pass rush would come through. It did. I felt like Lane Johnson would stop Nick Bosa. Lane Johnson did stop Nick Bosa. Bosa almost had a safety in this game, but it was on a play where Lane Johnson down blocked, and so Bosa didn't have to contend with Lane Johnson on that play. Other than that, Bosa was pretty quiet in this game. At the same time, it's hard to really measure the 49ers defense in this game because they did all they could for as long as they could. I have to give Charvarius Ward credit. Again, I felt like the one weakness the 49ers had was boundary corners. And Charvarius Ward, after a pretty rough game, in my opinion, against the Cowboys, came back and had an excellent game against the Eagles. He got beat deep once by A.J. Brown, and he got away with it because Jalen Hurts overthrew Brown on that play. But other than that, Ward was in perfect position more often than not. Had a couple of nice pass defenses, so I got to give him credit for his bounce-back performance. And I don't want to hog the rest of the show. I know Patrick's sitting there waiting, wondering when he's going to get a turn. But I'm just going to... Leave you with this last thought, and then I'll hand it over. Are we blaming Brock Purdy and Josh Johnson for their style of play, causing them to get hurt? Because that's been a hot topic lately, right? If a quarterback gets hurt, if a certain quarterback gets hurt because of how he plays, a certain type of quarterback gets hurt, it's because how he plays. 
Brock Purdy hasn't even hit double-digit games in the NFL yet, and he's already out for this season, and who knows what his status is for next season. It's amazing how style of play doesn't come up in this situation. But I just want people to see, because I don't want style of play to be blamed for what happened to Brock Purdy. I just want people to see this. The most dangerous place on the field for a quarterback is in the pocket. Purdy tears his UCL in the pocket. Josh Johnson gets concussed in the pocket. It's the place where you can't control how you get hit, especially when you're in your throwing motion. Both Purdy and Johnson were in their throwing motions in the pocket when they got hurt. So why would you not want a quarterback who can get out of that situation? Let's be somewhat logical when we start saying stupid stuff like, oh, he got hurt because of how he plays. Just wanted to leave you with that thought. Take it away, Patrick. All right, well, there's not much to say about this game. Um, Once Purdy gets hurt, I mean, don't get me wrong, Josh Johnson's been around the league a long time, but hasn't played much. I know he started here and there and his different different destinations, but as you could tell with the delay of games and and just not looking comfortable even when he was getting the ball, um, especially on that turnover where it hit his hands and he, he just fumbled it, like didn't even secure the snap. Um, he didn't want to be out there. Um, he was clearly just a, like, who's available for us to pick up as our fourth-string quarterback and um, maybe they should have had a fifth-string quarterback, Julius, because Kyle Shanahan, for some reason, has this long-running history now, all the way back to his offensive coordinator days in Washington, of his quarterbacks getting hurt. Um, RG3, we all know what happened with his knee. Um, and then you have Garoppolo, Trey Lance, Brock, Purdy, uh, Garoppolo a couple times, actually. Um and I'm sure there's more I'm missing, but at some point we got to stop saying things are coincidence whenever it's it's a trend like this. So you can't have five guys or Garoppolo twice. You can't have serious injuries and guys getting injured all the time, thinking that it's just a freak accident here and there. And and you know there are these memes floating around that it's happening to the 49ers because of how they did Colin Kaepernick. But I don't believe in bad juju. I mean Kaepernick, I guess, could have done some voodoo on them or something, or you know, put a curse on them, but. Uh, it's just interesting that it's following Kyle Shanahan around because that's that's just not a good track record to have with your quarterbacks. Um, yeah, I'm definitely disappointed in this game. You know, I I picked the 49ers just as an upset pick one because the Eagles destroyed the Giants, so I was hoping that someone could give it back to them. And two, um, just to be different, just just because I knew you were going Eagles, you know, just to have us, you know, on set on the opposite sides. Of the ball there, but um, I picked the Eagles to win the NFC in the preseason. If anyone wants to go look back at my post twenty-one weeks ago, uh, it's on our it's on our Facebook page, Two Guys Four Balls Podcast. But um, I definitely had the NF- I definitely had the Eagles as the top team in the NFC. I had I said they were going to win the NFC, and and that's what they did. Uh, so a little bit of validation. I said Hertz was going to take the next step after they got AJ Brown, and I loved all the offseason moves they made. So. Uh, the Eagles have been the most complete team in the NFL and NFC all year. If Hurts doesn't get hurt, they might have gone 16-1, and if we're being honest. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Eagles team is just stacked. The offense and defensive side of the ball, they might have 
the best offensive line and defensive line in the NFL. They definitely have the best offensive line in the NFL, um, and their defensive line is up there. Reddick has been causing havoc all year. Um, you know, Fletcher, some of the older guys, the veterans, Fletcher Cox, Brandon Graham, those guys have looked rejuvenated. Um, it's just it's just insane the pressure they've been able to get on the quarterbacks um, and and just wreak havoc. You know, they have guys in the secondary that are good, but they look even better when there's guys hitting the quarterback in two, three seconds. So, um, yeah, but once Purdy got hurt, this game was pretty much over. It might have been over even with Purdy in, but we didn't even get to see it. We didn't even get to see it happen. So that's what I, I just, you know, as a football fan, I'm disappointed. Uh, I don't blame Eagles fans for celebrating. I don't blame Eagles fans for talking their, their, their trash. You know, your team made the Super Bowl. Be excited. I will never, ever put a fan down for being excited about their team going to the Super Bowl. Um, however, they beat a broken-armed Brock Purdy. So, I mean, um, they didn't really get tested in this game at all. Um, and you can't take anything away from them. Again, they've been the most consistent, balanced team in the NFL from start to finish this year. Um, you know, Kyle Shanahan, even if you're, if, even if you don't want to challenge the play, if you see Devontae Smith getting up and smashing his hands together and the entire team running 40 yards to snap a play, just call a timeout. It was the first half. That was a fourth down play. Just call the timeout. I don't understand the thought process that you have there. It, it's the first half. I know people complain about using timeouts here and there. and stuff. It's the first half, though. Timeouts very rarely come back to haunt you in the first half. And most of the times, most coaches go into halftime with timeouts still in their pocket. So use it. It was a huge turning point in the game. And it's hard to say that because it was the first quarter and it was their first drive. and it was, But it was fourth down. If you get that overturned, you have the ball with great field position. They don't get seven points. So um, just, a, just a bad start to this game for the 49ers. Um, credit to Devontae Smith for catching it, quote-unquote. I mean, it's a catch now. Counts as a catch. And uh, telling his team to hurry the F up and let's go because, um, as you saw with the Tony catch in the next game we'll be talking about where he kind of just like w- walked back to the huddle all slow and stuff. Maybe if he got up in time and ran, ran back, oh, no, it's a touchdown, so it would have been reviewed anyway, never mind. But I'm just saying, like, you can just tell by the body language and what the receivers needed to do. Like, Devontae Smith, he understood the assignment. So he, he got up and was like, let's go, guys. I did not catch that. Um, but the Eagles look scary, man. They, they, they look scary. And if Mahomes' ankle is not even remotely close to 100% and he doesn't have a little bit more mobility than he had this last week, it will be a long Super Bowl for uh, Mahomes because even though I like the Chiefs' offensive line, I think they have a really good offensive line, especially in pass protection. It is not going against the Bengals and the Jaguars is not the same thing as going against the Philadelphia Eagles. So, um, 49er fans, I know you know there's no like you can't. It was a bad loss, and I know you guys have gotten to the NFC Championship multiple seasons in a row now just to just to come up short or make it to the Super Bowl just to come up short. And um, it's been a rough few years. But you got to be excited about the future, especially if Purdy can come back healthy. I was reading today that it's a six-month time frame for this injury, surgery or, surgery or not, Julius, and that's a little concerning. Um, 
But this is why when people say, trade Trey Lance now, we got Brock Purdy. No, no, you keep as many quarterbacks on your team as you can, especially if you don't have to pay them a lot of money. This is the time that you keep quarterbacks because look what happened. Lance goes down week two. Garoppolo goes down. Purdy goes down. Josh Johnson goes down. Um, If I'm the 49ers, I'm rolling with four quarterbacks next year, Julius. And then people might think that's crazy, but I would roll with four quarterbacks. I draft five. You got to do something. (laughs) You got to do something. Um, (laughs) I just, the the, the luck is so bad for the 49ers with injuries. We say this every year. Um, I don't know if they need to just get a whole new strength and conditioning team. Because uh, even if you think about this team during the regular season, they had a bunch of injuries. They they lost their number one corner like week five to a torn ACL. Like there's just so many injuries that happened to this team that people don't even realize happened because they were still winning games. That um, it's just bad, you know. It's, it's just really really bad. So, uh, but congratulations to the Eagles. Um, they're going to the Super Bowl again after. After the Foles run and then completely destroying their team and rebuilding it back up, I mean, they're going back to the Super Bowl, man. You got to give them credit where credit's due. Uh, And I love that Hurts is doing it because everyone says that you can't win with that style of play. And Jalen Hurts, Cam Newton, Lamar Jackson, all these guys are showing you that you can win with this quote-unquote style of play. So, and just to... um, elaborate on Julius's point uh yeah I didn't hear anything about Brock Purdy's injury and his style of play of why he got injured again it was an arm injury and he got hit by uh uh, I don't know why they had a tight end on Reddick but they did uh he got hit by poor poor uh pass protection but it's just something you you can't plan for just like defensive linemen and offensive linemen falling around your feet and knees you can't plan for that when you're trying to look down the field and throw the football so um as we talked about multiple times on this podcast the most dangerous place on a football field is in the pocket why because you have 10 other guys normally sometimes 12 falling around your feet and knees your arms that's why they made the tom brady rule whenever he got tackled low after that guy got pushed into his knee even though it happened to carson palmer with the steelers and they never made a rule for it uh, and the Bengals were um, looking like the best team in the NFL that year before Palmer went down. Uh, but, you know, it had to happen to Brady. But anyway, that's why they've made these rules, because it's very dangerous to be standing there while 10 to 12 other guys are falling down, getting pushed down 300 pounds near your knees and, and ankles. I, I can't even imagine one guy falling near my foot doing that. I don't want 12 of them and 10 of them. So... Uh, once again, has nothing to do with your style of play uh, because even the running quarterbacks don't normally get injured running the ball. Which brings me back to Sirianni and the Eagles. You guys were up by 28 or something. Why are you doing designed runs for Jalen Hurts? He got popped in this game when he got held up and the safety came running in and destroyed him in the back. And I'm just like, that's why you have running backs. You have Boston Scott. You have Gainwell. You have Miles Sanders. This game's over. Why are you running Jalen Hurts before the Super Bowl? Like, stop it. Like, that's a blow the whistle if I've ever had one. So, uh, you got to be smart whenever you're trying to protect your franchise quarterback who isn't 100%. You could tell his shoulder is still bothering him. But 
I just don't get that one either. So, uh, this game was a blowout. Not, no, no more needs to be said on this one, and let's move on to the AFC. So, moving right into the AFC Championship. This game lived up to the billing, and the Chiefs win 23-20. to I'm grateful we don't have to hear Burrowhead anymore. I'm grateful we don't have to hear about Joe Burrow being better than Patrick Mahomes. Like, stop it. Uh, there's levels to this quarterback stuff. And as I've said all year, and I know Julius has said this on the podcast more than once, it's Patrick Mahomes, dot, 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 space, 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 tier two, whoever you want to put in your tier two, and then everybody else, because that's just how good he is. If people love to talk about the Michael Jordan flu game, and we're still talking about the flu game from the finals, um, 30 years after it happened, we're going to be talking about the ankle game, Julius, uh, for years to come. This is one of the guttiest performances I've seen by a quarterback ever watching football. Uh, For people who don't understand what a high ankle sprain is, it's normally a four- to six-week recovery time frame. That is your normal timetable. A sprain, they say, is actually more painful than the fracture because the fracture at least is a clean break and then you can put it back and reset it and then it heals. The sprain is swelling and and it makes it feel like you have no movement in your ankle and all these other things that I read up on and he went out there and he gutted it out and you could tell his mobility's off. You can tell he can't put weight and power into his throws. He still threw for over 300 yards. He still threw a dot to Valdez Scantling for a touchdown, one of the most impressive throws I've seen, and it makes it even more impressive that he did it off one foot. So I don't want to hear any more conversations about who the best quarterback is in the NFL. Or Vlaski, it's not Burrow. You can't say Mahomes is the best athlete or whatever you want to say, and Burrow is the best quarterback. Stop the nonsense. Stop your coded racist talk because Mahomes has been doing this since he got the ability to start an NFL football game. Let's not act like Patrick Mahomes has had one okay year. He's had five stellar years as a quarterback. And the fact that people even question who's better is just laughable at this point. You try to put Josh Allen up there because they had a shootout. Guess who won with 13 seconds left? Guess who put his team in position to win? Patrick Mahomes, not Josh Allen. Joe Burrow still hasn't had a signature playoff game. If y'all go and look at the stats for the playoff games, I don't think he's ever thrown for over 300 yards. I don't think he's thrown for more than two touchdowns. So for everyone who wants to criticize the Bengals and the team around Joe Burrow, if you want to be honest, Burrow's been carried in the playoffs. Has he made good throws and plays? Yes. I'm not saying that. And I'm not even saying Burrow's a bad quarterback. I'm just saying there's levels to this. Mahomes, if he retired after this game, would be in the GOAT conversation. That's how good he is. That, that's just what you have to recognize of how good he is. You can't say that for any other quarterback in the league right now. You can't say that for any other quarterback through six years of their career besides maybe Tom Brady. But he wasn't even putting up the stats that Mahomes is putting up. So... 
if I had to hear about Tom Brady for 20 years, and I had to hear about Peyton Manning for however many years he was in the NFL, 16, 17 years, if I had to hear about Drew Brees, who only won one Super Bowl, and how great he was because he was putting up 5,000-yard seasons, if I had to hear from Philip Rivers, who never even won a Super Bowl or even went to one, if I had to hear about Big Ben, even though he, even though a wide receiver threw the only touchdown in the first Super Bowl victory for him, y'all, y'all got to hear about Patrick Mahomes. He's better than... Almost all of those individual quarterbacks I just named through the first five years of their career, or six years like technically because he sat on the bench, but through the first five seasons of actually starting, being a starting quarterback, he is better than all of them. This man's been to like four AFC Championship games. This is going to be his third Super Bowl. Like, what are we even discussing right now? Five AFC Championship games. Oh, I'm sorry, five AFC Championship. You're right, five AFC Championship games. <laughs> This will be his third Super Bowl. Yep. It's insane. Like, it's insane. Since he's been a starting quarterback, he's made it to the championship game in his division, like, in his conference. It just doesn't even make any sense. It doesn't make sense. Um, if anyone else did that, if anyone else did that, they would be talked about nonstop in the media. So, I just don't even understand where any of the hate comes from. And then, in this game... Everyone said that Tyreek Hill left, Patrick Mahomes was going to falter. He's probably winning the MVP. It's either going to be him or Hurts. But everyone said Mahomes isn't going to be that good this year because he lost Tyreek Hill. And he had arguably one of his best seasons of all time. And then in this game, he had three wide receivers go down to injury. He was playing with a tight end lining up at wide receiver. That's not named Travis Kelsey. (laughs) Think about that. Three wide receivers go down. Tony goes down. Hardman went back down. Juju Smith-Schuster went back down. He only had MVS out there. Valdez Scantling, for those of you who don't know who MVS is. Um, And I don't want to take anything away from the Chiefs' defense. The Chiefs' defense had a fantastic game. I'm just saying, this man played on one foot, one leg, essentially, and still played better than Joe Burrow, who was completely healthy. So... Yeah, think about that. Um, moving on to the Chiefs' defense, because uh, I think I said enough about the offense. Uh, moving on to the Chiefs' defense, Chris Jones, have yourself a day. Oh, my goodness. That guy, they were talking about he hasn't had any sacks in the playoffs and all this, and he's not getting to the quarterback. And I think people just care about stats too much in this age and era, Julius, because you can be a disruptive force and not get, quote-unquote, stats, and people don't realize that. Um but I don't understand Cincinnati's mindset and strategy going into this game. Why the mayor comes out and gives all this bulletin board material before the game, beyond me. Why uh, Mike Hilton wants to come out and call it Burrowhead and blah, blah, blah before the game, beyond me. Um, if you want to do that, do it after you win the game. I know it's the championship game, and I know people are going to play hard regardless. You don't need to add and give people more fire and more motivation to beat you. It just doesn't make sense. Um, and that's what the Chiefs defense came out looking like. They they wanted to make a statement. And, I, and for me, they did. This was the best defensive performance, I feel like, of the year for the Chiefs. Um, you know, Joe Burrow could have honestly had four or five interceptions in this game if you were watching the game. Uh, he only had two. Um you know, and you know there was the fact that Burrow was a leading rusher for the for the 
Bengals says a lot uh, to me uh, about how good the defense for Kansas City was playing. The fact that he was 26 for 41, didn't get over 300 yards. He was sacked five times. Um, again, threw two interceptions, probably should have been four or five. Um, it, it just The defense for Kansas City just really, really stepped up. Um, and they stepped up in a big way, too, because Patrick Mahomes lost that fumble where, the, where he went to go throw it and just slipped right out of his hands. Um, and, they, and they got a big stop, man. Like, I, I'm really, really impressed with, with the, the Chiefs' defense. And, and for me to be on their secondary all year long, and I know that, and I know that they were getting pressured. Like, I know their front seven was getting a lot of pressure in this game. But besides the fourth down that Burrow threw a jump ball to Jamar Chase, who just beat two guys in double coverage, um, the secondary played good all game. I have nothing bad to say about the secondary. Um, you know, you had McDuffie jumping. I guess this is the time when the, when the scouting combine matters because this man jumped 45 inches in the air to tip a ball that was going to be a first down to T. Higgins. Um, you had Cook. You had Cook hit a nice tip to, to get it away from Chase whenever he was beat, uh, which is how uh, Jalen Watson got his interception. Um, no, no, I'm sorry, that was Joshua Williams. Joshua Williams got that interception yes, off the yes. Cook tip. Uh, Watson got the other interception that looked just like Dak Prescott the week before. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what Burrow was doing on that throw, um, honestly. Um, but you know, there was there was multiple times there was there was a lot of tip passes. There was a lot of forced throws, and I feel like no one's talking about these forced throws. That if it was any other if it was any other quarterback, I feel like they'd be talking about his decision making and his IQ and the IQ for the game of football and what is he looking at. Um, I heard Cowboys fans getting on Dak Prescott for a whole season and then still talking about it while the <laughs> NFC Championship game was talking about how bad he is. Burrow had a very similar stat line to Dak Prescott against a worse defense statistically than the 49ers. And yet, I feel like everyone's blaming Joe Burrow's wide receivers, which... They bailed him out a bunch last night. Um, I feel like they're blaming his offensive line, which two of the starters are injured, but no one was complaining about that when they stopped the Bills from pressuring Joe Burrow. So just because you like somebody and you want them to be good and you want them to be great and you want them to be the next Patrick Mahomes, you can't make up excuses to protect that person's legacy. Joe Burrow had a bad game. It's okay. It happens. He's a quarterback in the NFL. Patrick Mahomes has had bad games. Every quarterback that has ever played quarterback has had bad games. Just a fact. Joe Burrow had a bad game. He did nothing to help his team win this game. Everyone's going to focus on uh, the defensive end for the Bengals pushing Mahomes at the end of the game. And this is the one thing I hate about sports the most, Julius. This game is 60 minutes long. Did that play? Did that play impact the game? Yes, it did. I'm not saying it didn't, but it did not cost them the win. It did not cost them the game. Did it put Harrison Butker in position to make the field goal, which he barely made? Yes, it did. I'm not saying it didn't. I don't want to take that away because it was a stupid, stupid play. I don't know why you're pushing this man when he's taking seven steps out of bounds. Like, again, it was dumb. It was a horrible play, and it was the correct call. You throw the flag, that was a correct call. But guess what? Burrow didn't convert 
a first down on the drive before to stop the Chiefs from having time to even do any of that. The Bengals could have gone down and gotten to field range and kicked a field goal to win the game, but they didn't. Before that play, the Bengals' defense could have tried and stopped anything else. Someone could have tackled Mahomes on one leg before he scrambled for 13 yards. Nothing happened up until that point that could have had the Bengals in a better position than what they were in. I just don't... It wasn't that one play that cost them the game. I just hate that people focus on one thing. They do it in basketball. Oh, that foul call cost us the game. They should have been shooting free throws and stuff. You shouldn't have been tied. You should have made more shots. You should have gotten a rebound. You should have played better. Like, you play an entire game for this reason. You know? I just, I don't I don't know, man. I get, but don't get me wrong. I, I am not trying to make any of the blame go away from, from that kid. He should not have pushed Patrick Mahomes. You cost your team a chance of going into overtime. But they're leading, again, the Bengals had the ball. They were driving. They could have wasted all the time like the Jaguars did against the Chargers and kicked a game-winning field goal. But they didn't convert. Why didn't they convert? Was it because the guy pushed Patrick Mahomes in the back out of bounds? No, because your offense didn't make the plays to keep the drive alive. Yep. So why are we not talking about that as well? Um, you know, I, I give Andy Reid a ton of credit in a in the era where you try to kick 58-yard field goals, which he didn't do, which I'm so happy because Bucker barely made a 45-yarder. Um, he punted it, and a lot of people were giving him shit for that call. And in real time, people were like, you either kick the 50-something-yard field goal or you go for it on fourth down. One, your quarterback's playing on one leg, so you don't go for a fourth and eight. Two, Thank God he didn't try to kick that field goal. Bucker would have been 10 yards short because he, again, barely made the field goal to win the game. Um, And three, your defense has been playing good all game. I understand that Joe Burrow and a high-powered offense is on the other side, but your defense has stepped up and played well this entire game. Punting it was the correct call. It was a great punt. Went to like the six-yard line. And guess what? Your defense stepped up, did what you wanted them to do, and then Sky Moore, shout out to the rookie, had a great punt return to get them into the position. Once again, if they had a better special teams coverage and stopped Sky Moore from getting a good punt return, they would have been in position to do anyway. There's so many things that happened that led to them losing this game. It wasn't just this kid pushing Patrick Mahomes in the back. Um, but that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to let Julius talk more about this game. But uh, it was a great game. Huge, huge legacy game for Patrick Mahomes, in my opinion. Uh, I feel like this just catapulted him into a top three quarterback of all time for me. Um, again, I know that sounds crazy, but if you actually just look at his accolades and stats, he's already has more accolades, stats, trophies, records than a lot of guys who played for 15 years. So, uh, shout out to Patrick Mahomes. You earn my respect every day, man. Every time I watch a game of you playing, there's something new that happens and it's, and it's amazing to watch. And I'm happy that I'm in an era that I get to watch you with my own eyes and appreciate, even though you're not my team, I still can appreciate how good of a quarterback you are. And I have to echo everything you've said about the discussion (laughs) the laughable discussion as to who the best quarterback in football is that's gotta stop it should have stopped years ago but people keep finding ways to move the bar and this year was supposed to be the year like you said this was supposed to be the year we saw justin herbert take over the afc west 
This was supposed to be the year that Josh Allen had his MVP run. This is supposed to be another year where Joe Burrow proved that he was better than Patrick Mahomes head up and that he was going to own Arrowhead Stadium. And none of that came to pass. So what's the next excuse now? For years, we heard that, oh, Patrick Mahomes isn't really that good. He's just lucky that he has Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. Anybody can throw it to Tyreek Hill. All you got to do is just throw it far. So now this year, you have Juju Smith-Schuster. You have McCole Hartman Jr. And they traded in season for Kadarius Toney. And all of a sudden, people acted like Kadarius Toney was a weapon. <laughs> when in his career have we seen that outside of what? Two weeks with the Giants? Like, like stop. But we get to this game with everything on the line. Mahomes comes in hurt. By the way, I think the, I think the injury, and I'm just putting this out there, I think that injury was a, a bit oversold. I said on this podcast last week, if Mahomes looks reasonably healthy, then I'm not buying what the diagnosis of the injury was. And that's where I am. Patrick talked about how a high ankle sprain is a four- to six-week injury. I just don't believe you're, you're that okay one week after a true high ankle sprain. Uh, Patrick compared this game to the Jordan flu game. This game reminded me of the Kurt Schilling bloody sock game. Ooh, good and I one. thought that injury was overblown with how they reported it. Again, thought it was a gutsy performance, and I want to give credit. But I just thought that in both cases, it was a little bit exaggerated to make it seem that much more heroic. That's just, that's just my thought on it. That said, take nothing away. There's no question that Mahomes was impacted by the injury. So I don't want to act like this was completely fabricated. I just think it was exaggerated. That's all. But again, Mahomes comes to this game hobbled. Burrow's got all the momentum. Then you get into the game. You lose Juju Smith-Schuster, you lose McCole Hartman, you lose Kadarius Tony, like I said earlier. By the way, those guys don't scare anybody. Like, they're, they're not a defensive coordinator in the league that's like, oh my gosh, how do I stop Smith-Schuster, Hartman, and Tony? I'm not going to sleep tonight. So you lose, you go from having a, a wide receiver core that's probably a B-C-plus group in the first place when fully healthy, down to the point where you're throwing a pass to Marcus Kemp in the AFC Championship. If you don't know who Marcus Kemp is, I don't blame you. He probably has close family members who don't know he's in the NFL. Marcus Kemp initially joined the Chiefs in 2017, believe it or not. And since 2017, he had caught four passes in the NFL before Sunday. You're throwing to that guy with everything on the line because you are literally out of options at wide receiver. Everything about how this game was playing out was screaming Cincinnati at that point. And when you look at how this game started, Kadarius Toney drops the touchdown like Patrick alluded to. Gets up looking like he's ashamed of himself. So there's no thought that he caught the ball. So you should have had a touchdown there. You have to settle for a field goal. Second Kansas City drive. Isaiah Pacheco runs in for a touchdown. Does a crazy celebration. I, I, 
Isaiah Pacheco got to be drug tested. I, just the way he acts on the field. I enjoy watching him, but the man got to be drug tested. So he gets in the end zone, does his surfing and all kinds of stuff in the end zone. Then that play is called back. And the Chiefs have to settle for a field goal there. So it should have been a 14-0 game. But thanks to a drop and a penalty, it's only 6-0. At this point, I'm thinking, okay, Cincinnati has caught the brakes. They're going to take advantage of this. But then Cincinnati had a missed opportunity of their own. They come down the field after they're down 6-0. Joe Burrow throws a nice pass down the left sideline to Hayden Hurst. I think because of the way the coverage was in position, Hurst couldn't see the ball. That, that's my thought on it. But the ball goes right through Hurst's hands. And that could have been a touchdown easily. So Cincinnati could have easily taken the lead right there, but they have to settle for a field goal. So the game is full of missed opportunities. And to Patrick's point, this is why games don't come down to one play at the end of a game. Because if any of these plays turned out differently, then we have a whole different score that we're dealing with going into the last couple possessions. So you're sitting there. It's a 6-3 game. The Chiefs get stopped on another third down in the red zone. So it looks like it's going to be 9-3. And at this point, I'm really concerned. So I'm like, you can't keep settling for field goals against Cincinnati. Andy Reid makes the decision to go for it. Patrick Mahomes, again, on this bad ankle, able to extend the play, create an opportunity for Travis Kelsey in the end zone, throws a touchdown, bang. All right. It's 13-3. The Kansas City pass rush is going. The pass rush for Kansas City had four sacks in the first 20 minutes of this game. So it's 13-3. That pass rush is going for Kansas City. It looks like this game could turn into a rout. After it's 13-3 is when Jalen Watson got that interception, like Patrick said, which was reminiscent of D'Amador Lenore's interception on Dak Prescott a week ago. And now I'm like, okay, now you got a chance if you're Kansas City. you got to bury these guys. Keep in mind, Kansas City had a big lead against Cincinnati last year in the AFC Championship. So I'm thinking, okay, now you got to come up with a killer instinct because you know no lead is big enough against this opponent. But after that interception, Mahomes throws a couple of bad passes. Chiefs go three and out. And it's like that breathe new life back into Cincinnati. At a time where you could have really put Cincinnati in a bad way was wasted there. So now we still got a game. Then after that, Ryan Cook, who was involved for better and worse in a lot of plays in this game, Ryan Cook almost tips the pass up in the air to cause the interception. Actually, he did do that, but he was just a fraction of a second early and did make contact with the receiver. Good call. It was pass interference. That took an interception off the board for the Chiefs. And the Bengals were able to take advantage of that and get a field goal. So the Bengals were in position at one point. It looked like they were going to go in a half, maybe down 17, 20 points. They're only down seven at halftime. Because if you're Cincinnati, you feel like you played the worst half that you could have possibly played, and you're right in this game. So, again, I'm thinking this game is still kind of shaping out for a Cincinnati win. Then when you look at how the second half started, Kansas City gets the ball first. They immediately get stopped. Cincinnati comes out their first possession. Touchdown. T. Higgins, an easy, effortless high-point ball caught over Jalen Watson. 
And again, when people watch Jamar Chase and, and T. Higgins, I just don't understand how they don't understand that this is one of the absolute best wide receiver duos in football. And T. Higgins is somehow forgotten. I, I, maybe that's why he's changing his number from 85 to 5, because maybe he thinks that, that 85 makes him forgettable or something. I, I don't know, because in today's era, wide receivers don't wear numbers in the 80s anymore. Much to my chagrin, but uh, I digress. Let's get back into it. So now you got a 13-13 game after Cincinnati's played as poor of a first half offensively as they could have. But then, you know, the, the Chiefs caught another break because I thought Cam Taylor Britt had a chance to get an interception on the next drive after the Bengals tied the game. Taylor Britt broke great on the out route, and I think he got to the spot even before he expected to get to the spot. It looked like the pass kind of hit Taylor Britt before he could even get his hands up. But it's an excellent play by him. If, if Taylor Britt intercepts that, again, another break for Kansas City, another missed opportunity for Cincinnati, another play that could have changed the game but didn't happen. And after that second chance for the Chiefs, they're able to take advantage. I got to give Marquez Valdez-Scantling a bunch of credit because he was really the last man standing in his wide receiver group. And he came up big in this game. And Valdez-Scantling is a guy since college. Very much talented. Very much physically gifted. It's just been a matter of can you consistently catch the football? And in this game, he didn't just make all the routine catches. He made big-time catches. He had one catch that was kind of over the shoulder behind him down the field that he was able to catch in traffic. I thought Von Bell was going to lay him out on that play, but Bell seemed like he pulled up. I don't think he expected that Valdez-Scantling had a chance to catch that ball. So I think Bell was trying to kind of avoid a penalty because, you know, if you hit a defenseless receiver, it's a big deal. And in, in doing so, gave up a highlight catch to Valdez-Scantling. Uh, Valdez-Scantling had a screen pass in his game that he turned into a big play. Had a couple other downfield catches. And he was the one who caught the touchdown on just a laser from Mahomes. Uh, Patrick talked about that throw. I have no idea how Mahomes got that kind of velocity and that kind of precision on any pass in this game, basically throwing off a one foot or basically hopping to throw the football. But he threw a complete laser uh, to Valdez-Scantling for the go-ahead touchdown to give the Chiefs that 20-13 lead. And now, again, if you're Kansas City, now you're back to feeling good about yourselves, but not too good because, again, we all know the history of these two teams. Uh, people act like, you know, the, the Chiefs were owned by the Bengals. And you can say that because the Bengals won all three. But keep in mind, the Chiefs had late leads in each game. So to be up seven in the second half kind of meant nothing to Kansas City because they knew we've been here before. These guys have come back. And again, Kansas City had opportunities to put him away in this game and didn't. So you have a seven-point lead. You're not feeling comfortable, but you get the ball back. And once again, I talked about how it was 13-3. Jalen Watson gets the interception. Mahomes goes three and out. Here, Mahomes gets the ball back up 20-13 to at the end of the third quarter. Has a chance to maybe start to put this game away. And that's when Mahomes has the unforced fumble where he's just trying to throw a quick pass and loses the ball. And gives it back to Cincinnati. So that was a chance to put the game away. Mahomes missed that opportunity. That ultimately set the stage for the game time touchdown from Samaj P. Ryan. And that touchdown was set up by, again, the, the Jamar Chase catch that Patrick referred to. He jumps over two guys, beats um, Brian Cook, because Cook was the guy who got routed on that play. 
He's supposed to be the guy that's deep back. He's the safety. He's playing the most important position in football. You can't on a fourth down let Jamar Chase get behind you, but he got smoked on a Chase fake on that route, and he was behind the corner on that play. And then, of course, Chase just leaps over top of both of them and makes a ridiculous catch. And I'm just going to stop here for a second. When you see Jamar make Chase make that kind of catch, 35-yard catch over two defenders on fourth and six, you got the game in some ways on the line. Why does this team insist on throwing so many short passes to Chase that aren't working? Chase has six catches in this game. Four of the six catches went for less than 10 yards. For a receiver as explosive as Jamar Chase, that should not happen. And when I say four to six went for less than 10, two of those six catches were for less than five yards. What are we doing? With a player that explosive, why do we do this? The screens that worked for Jamar Chase last year didn't work at all this year because Cincinnati counts on him too much. The first play of the game, go back and look at the first play of this game. Jamar Chase, three-yard screen pass. Teams are sitting on that. Jamar Chase is a monster. Jamar Chase makes beautiful catches down the field like we just talked about on that fourth down. There's no reason defenses should be able to sit on short routes for somebody that explosive. That is poor play calling. And I am ready at this point to see that Jamar Chase screen, if not completely eliminated from Cincinnati's playbook, be significantly reduced because it has not fooled anyone in a long time. And he's too good of a player to be getting consistently two and three yard catches. So I just had to throw that out there. Yeah, like I said, Samaji P. Ryan gets the touchdown after Chase makes that highlight play. You got a 20 to 20 game. And again, like you said, Patrick, both teams at that point had a chance to win it. So you can't lament too much on the last play. You talked about the play that Brian Cook made. Again, the most important position of football, playmaking safety. Brian Cook, when it mattered most, and he had kind of a tumultuous game, but when it mattered most, he was stride for stride with T. Higgins and knocked the ball up to create that Joshua, uh, Joshua Williams interception, which kept the game tied. If, if Cook doesn't make that play, you might be looking at the Bengals back in the Super Bowl. But that's a huge play coming from the most important position in football. So we get to the end of the game. Again, the Bengals, Joe Burrow has a, a ball in his hands. He's, he's deep in his own territory, but he's got the ball in his hands. That's what he would want. That's what his fans would want. He's Joe Cool. He's the next Joe Montana, according to Joe Namath. There's all the Joes to pile up in this thing. He should want the ball in that situation. I should want to have to drive 90-something yards to win this game. Burrow doesn't get it done. Chris Jones, who had a monster game, comes off the edge. One of the few times in this game, if not the only time in this game, he came off the edge. And I like Chris Jones in the middle. I like him destroying that pocket, collapsing that pocket. But they decided to put him on the edge for the key play on that last drive. And Jones came through with a sack. So give him big-time credit. I am absolutely shocked to find out that that was Chris Jones' first career playoff sack. As, as dominant as he is, I was just shocked to hear that. But like I said, now you got a punt. <clears throat> and, you know, Patrick, you've been critical of the Chiefs secondary uh, all year long. That was your big concern. I was critical on the Chiefs special teams all year. That was my big concern. But like you said, Sky Moore, a guy who had muffed multiple punts, he lost a punt return job because he could not field or hold on to a punt all season. The only reason Scott Moore was back there is because of all the entries to Hardman and Tony. 
They had to put Sky Moore back there. They would never put him back there if they had a choice not to. They put him back there, and he comes through with a huge return, almost 30 yards. That sets you up for a potential game-winning drive. Then, of course, the play happens with Mahomes and Joseph aside at the bounds. It's, it's unfortunate for so many reasons. Like you said, Osad's going to get all the blame in this game, even from some of his own teammates. We, we've seen the clip of Jermaine Pratt as he's going into the locker room asking why you would touch the quarterback. Osai's a good player who had a good game up until that point. So it's a shame that it had to be him. That's uh, Joseph Osai is a guy that I wanted the Raiders to draft. Uh, I've, I've been high on him since he was at Texas. So it's, it's a shame that it had to be him, but it was a dumb play. Good player, dumb play. And then Harrison Butker hits the game-winning field goal, and the ball was just was not traveling. The ball was not traveling in this game. There were short kickoffs in this game, short punts. I mean, the ball was not traveling all night. So a 45-yard kick in these conditions was not a gimme. So I got to give the Chiefs special teams credit because between Sky Moore and Harrison Butker, they closed the show to help Mahomes finally get that monkey off his back of, y'all, you can't beat Burrow, you can't beat Burrow. I want to give Frank Clark credit in this game. He got a sack in the first possession. He, he was in the backfield a lot in this game. And Frank Clark, third all-time in career playoff sacks. Another stat that surprised me. But like I said, because of Patrick Mahomes, the Chiefs been a lot of playoff games. Of course, Frank Clark was with the Seahawks before. They were a consistent playoff team when he was there. So... You know, you get high on these postseason lists when you play a lot of playoff games, and Frank Clark has, but Frank Clark has stepped up in those games. So I want to give him credit. I also want to give credit to Jalen Watson and Trent McDuffie. Again, we talked about this secondary and how the young guys were going to have to step up. And this was a game where Jarius Sneed got knocked out early, so the young Bucks had to step up even more. And between Jalen Watson and Trent McDuffie, McDuffie almost had an interception early in the game. He had one that he just couldn't hang on to. Again, another play that could have changed the, the score in this game. But those two really stepped up and held their own in the absence of the one veteran corner that they have in their secondary. So that was a great job by them. Uh, the one concerning thing for me in, for, for the Chiefs in this game was the fact that Isaiah Pacheco, Jarek McKinnon, and for who knows what reason, Ronald Jones. I don't know why he got the game before McKinnon did. Somebody got to explain that to me. I don't know if McKinnon missed a practice or was late to a meeting. I don't know what's going on. But those three combined for 15 carries for just 27 yards. So, again, a hobbled quarterback who's getting absolutely zero from the run game and is throwing to people who you can't name beyond Travis Kelsey. And this team still gets it done. So I give the Chiefs a ton of credit for that. Cincinnati, they played a strong game, but again, plenty of missed opportunities. Like you said, Joe Burrow has still never accounted for more than two touchdowns. Again, that's passing and rushing combined. He has never accounted for more than two touchdowns in a playoff game. And that he's still 5-2 and two in the playoffs, so don't tell me he doesn't have a supporting cast. I know the offensive line was shorthanded. They were shorthanded last week against Buffalo, and nobody complained about them then. So, again, Joe Burrow, he's got a bright future. He's going to get paid and get paid big time very soon. And he deserves every dollar that he signs for. But he was not that guy in this game. And like Patrick said, ultimately, there's levels. It didn't just come down to the quarterbacks in this game. But it was no question that Mahomes, with everything working against him, Mahomes was a far superior quarterback to Joe Burrow in this game. All right, so... 
again, because we only had two games this weekend, gave us a chance to kind of do extended breakdowns of the games, including a game that you really didn't need much of an extended breakdown for, unfortunately, with the 49ers um, having all the injury issues. But now we are at the point of the show that I know a lot of people are waiting for. We're at the point of the show where one way or another, we are going to be held very much accountable in a couple of weeks. And we like that. And that is with the Super Bowl predictions. So Super Bowl 57, we've got the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs. I am not shy to say that I am excited and happy to see two black quarterbacks starting in the Super Bowl for the first time ever, for the first time in 57 Super Bowls. I have no problem saying that. I would enjoy watching this game if it was Cincinnati versus San Francisco, assuming that Purdy never got hurt. But it feels nice, and it makes me look forward to the game that much more. Again, knowing what these black quarterbacks go through, knowing all the codes and, all, all the, again, all the code words, all the hate, all the ridiculous standards. You know, when you start hearing stuff, like on ESPN, Dan Orlovsky saying that Patrick Mahomes is the best player in the league, but Joe Burrow is the best quarterback. That makes zero sense. How can somebody at your position be better than you if you're the best player in the league? But that's the kind of stuff you deal with when you're a black quarterback. Uh, again, when Mahomes hurt the ankle, people kept saying, well, that's going to affect his style of play as if it wouldn't affect any quarterback who's ever played football if they can't plan on their back foot. But this is the kind of stuff that black quarterbacks have dealt with throughout the history of football and still continue, unfortunately, to deal with this day to this day. But whereas in the past it was more blatant, now it's more in a microaggression kind of way. So with all that, that both these quarterbacks have had to endure. Keep in mind, when both these quarterbacks entered the league, let's not forget where both these quarterbacks came from. Patrick Mahomes was a guy who was passed over from Mitchell Trubisky. Patrick Mahomes was a guy, when he was drafted, I was told, and the people who told this to me know who they are. I was told Patrick Mahomes won't succeed because no Big 12 quarterback can succeed in the NFL. And now it's kind of ironic that you got two black quarterbacks in the Super Bowl who both played in the Big 12 at some point in their college careers. So that's funny to me. But it's stuff like that that they have to deal with. And, of course, we know with Jalen Hurts and how he got benched in the national championship. And I'm not even saying that was the wrong decision. But he had to overcome some adversity when that happened. And he had to end up transferring schools and do all that, end up being a second-round pick. Still being doubted despite having all the accolades, despite, you know, he came from a school where, you know, Baker Mayfield comes out of Oklahoma. He's a number one overall pick. Kyler Murray comes out of that program. He's a number one overall pick. All of a sudden, when it's Jalen Hurts' turn, nobody's looking at him in the entire first round. So both these quarterbacks have come a long way and have had to deal with a lot of adversity. Again, a lot of it being tied to the color of their skin. So I'm just glad to see it. So I just wanted to start this off with that. Getting to the prediction part now. We're talking Patrick Mahomes. I'm assuming he's going to be a little better, a little more mobile. Travis Kelsey, I'm assuming that back is going to get better over the next couple of weeks. I know both of those guys are going to be getting a lot of treatment over the next couple of weeks, a lot of rest, a lot of treatment. I don't know what the status of any of the wide receivers are for Kansas City. 
Uh, so it's hard to project anything there. But again, we've seen that this Chiefs offense can function even if it's just Valdez Scantling and a bunch of dudes at wide receiver because their guy is that good under center. We've seen this defensive front come through for the Chiefs. Again, Frank Clark, Chris Jones, they deserve a lot of credit. George Karlaftis, the guy I liked for Kansas City coming out of the draft. He's making plays. He had a sack in the AFC Championship. There's a lot to like about Kansas City. Like I said, these young corners growing up in a hurry in the postseason. Jalen Watson, his second consecutive postseason game with an interception after he only had one interception all regular season. Hadn't had an interception since September before the playoffs. Now he's had two games in a row with an interception. So these young guys are stepping up for Kansas City. And I want to give them credit. It's hard to pick against a team that's been there this many times and has a combination of veterans who have been there before and young guys who haven't, but young guys who are stepping up in big moments. But I look at the Philadelphia Eagles, and Patrick mentioned this very point. I'm going to reiterate that point. The Philadelphia Eagles have the best offensive line in football. They have two guys in Jason Kelsey and Lane Johnson who are Hall of Fame, not, not, not just all pro or pro bowl, Hall of Fame type of offensive lineman. And there is no weakness on that offensive line. The one thing they got to keep an eye on, Landon Dickerson did get hurt in the NFC Championship. So I got to see what his status is. But the Eagles do have the best offensive line in football. Then you combine that with probably having the best defensive line. I'll say it again. I've said this step before. I'll say it again. 14 players in the NFL had at least 11 sacks this year. Four of the 14 play for the Eagles. When you are that dominant at the line of scrimmage on one side of the football, you tend to be a pretty good team. To be that dominant on both sides of the line of scrimmage. And then, Patrick, you've talked about how the pass rush, if you have an elite pass rush, it makes average corners look good. The Eagles don't have average corners. Darius Slay and James Bradbury, pretty darn good. You put all this together, and I just can't bring myself to pick against the Philadelphia Eagles. So if you're asking for my two-week in advance prediction, and I may change the score a little bit, but right now I am feeling a 24 to 20 kind of win for the Philadelphia Eagles in Super Bowl 57. So I tried to get cute last week and pick the 49ers over the Eagles in the championship game, even though I had the Eagles preseason winning the NFC. I'm not going to make the same mistake twice in two weeks, Julius. Um, if Patrick Mahomes was 100% healthy, if Kelsey was 100% healthy, Travis, um, if his wide receiver core was 100% healthy, then maybe I would pick the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, it's, it's poetic. You've got the Kelsey brothers Super Bowl. Andy Reid used to be the head coach, probably the most beloved head coach 
in Eagles history, even though he's not the one that won a Super Bowl for them, but it was pretty much his team that was constructed that won the Super Bowl um, for them. Um, you know, playing back against Philly. Um, but since I have to make this prediction, as you already said, two weeks in advance, we don't know the health of anybody. We don't know the statuses right now. We're literally going off of the conference championship games just ended. I'm going to have to go with the Eagles. And it's for pretty much all the reasons you said. Um, again, the Chiefs secondary has stepped up. Uh, that was my biggest concern for them. And they've done it against good receiving cores. They haven't even done it against scrubs. Again, Higgins and Chase, and we didn't even mention Boyd. Um, great receiving core. But uh, the Eagles offensive line is not going to get pushed around like the Bengals offensive line. Those corners and safeties are going to have to go up against A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith. And don't forget they got burners as their third and fourth string wide receivers with Quez Watkins and Zach Pascal. So they don't even have bums as their third and fourth receivers. Um, I, I just think I just think this game, I think they're just going to control the trenches. And I think the Eagles are going to impose their will as they have all year and every playoff game they've been in as well uh, on the other team. You know, they, the Eagles sometimes try to get cute and try to, you know, throw the ball and and um, go for the big bomb shots and stuff. But when they need a money play or when they need a few yards, we know what they do. <laughs> they get into the quarterback sneak position or they just go behind that big offensive line. And Miles Sanders, here you go. Kenneth Gainwell, here you go. Boston Scott, here you go. It doesn't matter who runs the ball for the Eagles. They're averaging like five yards per carry. That's insane. Um, and then the defensive line. Again, I know the Chiefs have a good offensive line, especially in pass protection. They've never gone up against a front like this. And if you don't have Juju Smith-Schuster, if you don't have Hardman, if you don't have Tony, if you don't have anybody besides MVS and Travis Kelsey, I'm a little concerned. And don't get me wrong, Travis Kelsey is a Hall of Fame tight end. You can make the case he is a top three ever tight end right now while he is still playing. That is not lost on me. But you have a scheme with the Eagles, especially with Gardner Johnson back. You have Bradbury, you have Slay. You have all these guys that can cover Kelsey or cover him to the best of their abilities. But also, if Mahomes isn't 100% healthy and doesn't have the mobility that lets him make these amazing plays that no one else can make. If he's playing on one leg like he did against the Bengals, the Eagles aren't going to sit back like the Bengals did and not blitz this man and not hit this guy. This guy, Mahomes is going to get hit. And I just don't see how this chief secondary holds up against the Eagles either. So I'm going with the Eagles. Fly, Eagles, fly. It hurts hurts me to say that because they knocked us out of the playoffs and they're our rivals. But um, I just don't think you can deny what they've done this year. The only thing that I'd be worried about if I was an Eagles fan is if you have to play from behind early, a.k.a. if the Chiefs receive the opening kickoff and go down and get a touchdown. Eagles haven't had to play from behind a lot this year. 
their offense and schemes fit more well to obviously having a lead or it being a tied game and burning clock and just taking your soul from you, that would be my only concern is if the Chiefs get the opening kickoff and they go down and get a touchdown or three points and then if there's a turnover or something that happens and, and if they get a little bit of a lead, that would be my biggest concern in the Super Bowl if I'm an Eagles fan, but I just think the Eagles are the best team top to bottom on all facets of the game. So um, for me, the most important position in football is kicker. I know Julius thinks it's playmaking safety, but it's clearly kicker. It's been proven every year that the kicker is the most important position. So many games, won or lost by the kicker, just ask the Chargers. Ask the Bengals after Butker banged down his field goal. You know, ask ask um, the Bears with the double doink, as Chris Collinsworth always likes to say. Ask everyone who's ever lost a playoff game on a missed field goal. <laughs> so, um, no, but I just think the Eagles are the best team top to bottom. And um, this prediction could change uh, depending on what the health statuses of are of all the Chiefs players and everything like that. But as of right now, in this moment, I think the Eagles have the best chance to come away with a Super Bowl victory. I think it's going to be a little bit more dominant just because of how they're going to impose their will, and I actually have it being a 28-10 to 10 game. Whoa. All right, so moving on to what's happening in the sports world. Julius stole my thunder, but I don't mind at all. I'm talking about yeah. two, two black quarterbacks facing off in the Super Bowl for the first time, and it's going to be happening during Black History Month, so can't ask for a better time for it to happen. Um, I'm excited. I've been talking to Julius about this a lot. I'm excited for the NFL offseason. I know the Super Bowl hasn't even been played yet, but I am ready for the draft. I am ready for free agency. I'm ready to see how these contracts unfold because Herbert and Burrow are going to get paid, 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 paid. Um, the thing that I want to touch on in this segment is kind of piggybacking off of what Julius said about the undertones and the underlying things that sports media individuals especially in the mainstream media what they say about certain athletes and and how it's just undercover racism for example as Joyce already talked about how Trubisky got taken ahead of Mahomes and he also got taken ahead of Deshaun Watson and how other quarterbacks are evaluated coming into the draft Hurts falling to the second round why because he didn't play in a pro-style offense, which he played at Alabama. But anyway, he went to Oklahoma, and it's a spread offense, and this and that. And how Mel Kiper Jr. is looking at Will Levis right now. He's the most pro-ready quarterback because his the, the style of offense that he plays in college is a pro-style offense. I, what does that mean, a pro-style offense? If anyone has watched the NFL in the last 10 years, a good offensive coordinator and coach and team adjust their offense to the person who is running it. AKA, everyone always talks about how the Ravens brought in this and that to build around Lamar Jackson, and the offenses run heavy to build around Lamar Jackson. Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs, do you think that they're just sitting there running a pro-style offense because they got Mahomes? They're, they're running an offense that fits Mahomes. What does it mean to have a pro-style offense? Everyone in the NFL takes a shotgun snap, if you're talking about the air raid offense. 
we have the Eagles playing a pistol offense with with Hurts essentially, and they're in the Super Bowl. What that means is, here's a white guy that can line up under center who's six four, and has a big arm, which is the dumbest and most illogical scouting report you can do these days. Drew Brees proved you don't need to be tall and you don't need to have a cannon for an arm to be a good quarterback. Russell Wilson has proven you don't need to be above six feet tall to be a good quarterback. Kyler Merton. No, okay, never mind. But you understand what I'm saying. (laughs) There's many examples of quarterbacks. Baker Mayfield, can't miss prospect. Number one quarterback coming out. That guy can't even start for the Panthers anymore. Sam Darnold fits the mold of a pro-style quarterback. Not even on the team that drafted him. Third overall. Josh Rosen, 6'6", big arm, blah, blah. Dude can't even complete a pass in the NFL. His completions are interceptions. (laughs) So I'm just tired of scouts and people who look at the game and call the games... As Julia said, everyone said Jalen Hurts would have mounted up. There, there are so many clips of individuals saying Jalen Hurts will never make it in the NFL. I don't see how you can win anything with Jalen Hurts. Chris Sims this year, which he tried to get mad at everyone else for just repeating what he said, that Gardner Minshew would do the same things, if not better, than Jalen Hurts. Gardner Minshew went 0-2 when they were still playing for something. The rush offense lost like 100 yards a game compared to their average when Gardner Mishu was in there. Lamar Jackson and the Ravens were fifth for points per game while he started at 27.1. They dropped to 14.7 in like 30th in the NFL once he got hurt and didn't start. Shut up with your narratives because they're not narratives. Their racism covered as analytical sports evaluations. And I'm tired of it. Will Levis should not go in the top five of this draft. He should not be the number one ranked quarterback scouting in this draft. You have Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud in this draft. Did you see what C.J. Stroud did against the number one defense in college football this year? He probably should have won the game. Did his defense collapse and fall apart on him? Did Marvin Harrison Jr. going out of the game affect the game? Yes, but he still did enough to win the game. Did his coach get conservative at the end and settle for a 50-yard field goal? Absolutely. Was that on C.J. Stroud? No, it wasn't. He did everything he could to win the game. Bryce Young's undersized. You've never seen a quarterback of his size play in the NFL. I'm worried about the hits he's going to take. He's been playing football his entire life. Are you trying to tell me he doesn't take hits in college? The same kids in college in the SEC that all get drafted in the first two rounds to play defense in the NFL? What the fuck are we talking about? I'm over it. I'm over it. I'm over it. Happy Black History Month, everybody. All right. For my what's going on around sports, I'm going to jump into NBA just a little bit. Not going to do too, too much with it, but... Uh, just a couple of storylines that are on my mind this week. Uh, one, Joel Embiid leads the NBA in scoring average. 
in what world is he not an all-star starter? What are we doing? What are we doing? You know, it's it's one thing to argue whether or not Joel Embiid deserves to have won MVP by now, things like that. I, I don't think he's necessarily been robbed out of that. I think Nikola Jokic has earned the MVPs he's won. But somebody who is a top three or so MVP candidate not starting in the All-Star game, why? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I love how after Embiid found this out, you know he's, he's taking it personally that on, at every turn he's being slighted for Nikola Jokic. Those two went up against each other. And the Sixers beat the Nuggets in a game where Joel Embiid dropped 47, 18, and 5. You think that was a little personal? But I wanted to bring this up because I want this to be not just the case in the NBA, in all sports. Ban fan voting for every All-Star game. If you can't do something as simple as vote for the leading score in the NBA, to have a starting spot on the All-Star team. And you're voting injured players in on both sides over Joel Embiid. Then you don't deserve to vote. And I'm tired of hearing all this. Well, you got to keep fan voting because, you know, this is for the fans and we, we want to make sure the fans feel appreciated. You know what would make the fans feel appreciated? If players would play. That goes back to what I've been talking about before. Tonight, LeBron James and Anthony Davis aren't playing. Why? We just saw them play a full game on Saturday. We know they're not hurt. <laughs> but they're not playing tonight because they have a game tomorrow that they have to rest up for. If you cared about fans, fan voting does not show that you care about fans. Showing up would, would show me that you care about fans. But since you have guys resting at every turn, since no names continue to have to work their way into starting lineups because none of the stars can play more than two or three games in a row. We just watched Kawhi Leonard and Paul George sit out another game. Okay, I, if I'm going to a Clippers game, I don't want to pay full price. I'm talking hundreds of dollars in these tickets to watch Brandon Boston Jr. and Moses Brown get big minutes. You want to show me that fans matter? Get these healthy players to play in games. Don't just give me fan voting. Fan voting is ruining the All-Star game. And that's the one time you want to have the fans' input. That's the one time you want to care about how the fans feel. And if you care about the fans, either have the players play or reduce ticket prices when you know in advance star players are resting. Imagine if you bought tickets to this Lakers-Nets game tonight. A month ago, you thought you were going to see LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant. And I understand Durant's hurt, but you don't get to see any of them. Hope you enjoy watching the other Curry. Hope you enjoy Dennis Schroeder. That's what you get while still paying the same price you would pay if LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and Kevin Durant were all playing. So again, ban fan voting because you don't care about the fans in any other aspect of your product. Don't care about them for this. Something else I want to get into. Luka Doncic got injured 
and essentially he got he got injured early in a game this week, three minutes in. So essentially he's missed the last couple of games. In those games, the game he got injured in and the next game, Spencer Dinwiddie has averaged 35 points, five rebounds, and eight assists. And I'm rounding a little bit down. Because I don't want anybody to accuse me of making stuff up. I'm rounding down. 35, 5, and 8 is what Spencer Dinwiddie is averaging without Luka Doncic. Why do I bring this up? I'm tired of hearing about Luka needs help. He's really good. Just, just wait till he gets somebody. You know why Luka doesn't seem to have help? He doesn't share the ball. Oh, but, 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 but he gets so many assists. How can you say that? He dribbles the ball down, runs the clock down almost every time, and either he pulls up for three without ever passing the ball, drives the lane and goes for a layup without ever passing the ball, or he kicks out the spot-up shooters, which Spencer Dinwiddie is not. There's a reason why Jalen Brunson got out of Dallas the moment he could. And now you look at Jalen Brunson this year, part of Luka's no help. Jalen Brunson is a borderline all-star this year. Jalen Brunson has helped the Knicks go from irrelevant last year to at least decent this year. I'm not saying the Knicks going to win the East because of him, but the Knicks are a respectable team that should make the playoffs, largely because Brunson joined that team. Christos Porzingis, another guy who couldn't wait to get out of Dallas, is back to averaging 22-9. and nine. The only time in the last five years Porzingis has an average at least 22 is when he was at Dallas and not getting to touch the ball, when he became just another spot-up shooter. Stop making the excuses. Luka Doncic, a lot of people would tell you he's the best player in the league. He's not, but a lot of people would tell you that because they love his stats. When Russell Westbrook was doing the same thing a few years ago, everybody said he was a ball hog and a stat pad. When James Harden was doing the same thing a few years ago, people said he was a ball hog and a stat pad. Because that's what you are if you just put up stats and 30-point triple-doubles and you don't win. But Lucas won nothing. And it's not to say he never will. He's a young player who can still change his style. But the NBA is a place right now, more so than any other sport, the NBA is a place where once you are off your rookie contract, you are basically a free agent every year. That is why Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert could just say, we're, we're leaving the Jazz. We're not playing here no more. That's why James Harden and Ben Simmons can say, we're not going to play with the teams we were with last year. That's why Kawhi Leonard can go to the Clippers and say, I'm not going to sign with y'all unless y'all get Paul George, who's under contract with another team. In the NBA, you are basically a free agent every year once your rookie contract is over. Because all you got to do is sit out and you'll win every time because every team in the league capitulates. So with that in mind, any player basically can go anywhere. And I didn't even mention Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis was under the contract with New Orleans. And LeBron said, you're coming to Los Angeles. So, again, every player is a free agent in the NBA once they wrap up their rookie contract. Every player can then decide any year they can go wherever they want. And yet nobody chooses to go to Dallas. Why? Because they understand if I go to Dallas, I will never get to touch the ball. I will never get any of the glory. And I'm going to take all the blame. Until that changes, you are seeing the Mavericks ceiling right now. 
Luka's going to have to change his style of play. He plays in the NBA just like he plays internationally when he plays with Team Slovenia. Now, you know Slovenia that doesn't have a whole bunch of ballers over there. So that team, he does have to try to carry. He does have to try to score 50 points and get 15 rebounds and 15 assists every time he plays with them. But he treats NBA players the same way. You guys just stand around and watch me, and if I get in trouble, I'll kick it out to somebody. Now, that works great if you're Dorian Finney-Smith or if you're Reggie Bullock, somebody like that. All you can do is spot-up shoot. You don't have your own game. Tim Hardaway Jr. Guys that are just spot-up shooters, you need somebody that, that makes all the plays for you. You guys fit with Luka. If you're somebody like Dwight Powell, almost all your offense comes right at the rim. Rim running, alley-oops, that kind of stuff. Playing with Luka works out great. But if you're a guy who can create your own offense, like a Spencer Dinwiddie, you'll never fit with this version of Luka. So I just, I'm tired of the excuses for Teflon Doncic. You got to hold him to a high standard the same way you would players who you consider aren't as good as him. Last thing I want to talk about on a little more of a positive note, I just want to highlight Tyrese Halliburton. He's just he's one of my favorite players. He's probably my favorite player in the league right now. Certainly my favorite young player. Halliburton gets traded from the Kings to the Pacers last year for another player I like, uh, DeMontis Sabonis. But uh, Halliburton is just a player I couldn't trade away. He has led the league in assists per game this year. He has been absolutely one of the most efficient guards in the game. He had this team in sixth place in the East before he got hurt. He got hurt a couple weeks ago. Up until the time he got hurt, the Pacers had been 8-3 and three in his last 11 starts. So 8-3 and three in their last 11 games before Halliburton got hurt. Since then, the Pacers are 1-9 without Tyrese Halliburton. They didn't go from decent to sort of bad. They went from pretty good Nice standing within the Eastern Conference to can't win a game and can they even get back in the Eastern Conference race. They need Halliburton back in a hurry. And I just wanted to just highlight that because when you talk about the big impact players in basketball, Halliburton is not a name that comes up. I think people are still learning who he is. But I don't think, and there's a lot of people who kind of acknowledge him a little bit, but I don't think it's realized just how good he is. How he has no real weakness in his game. He's not a dominant scorer. If you want to call that a weakness, maybe that's it. But he can steadily get you 18, 20, 22 points on mostly efficient shooting. So just all around really good player. Maybe not that superstar. Maybe not a guy who's ever going to win the MVP. But just a guy I want people to follow. Hopefully he can get back healthy. He suffered two injuries at the same time, an elbow and a knee injury off of an awkward fall. And that goes back to the famous Andre Miller quote. How did he never get injured playing basketball? He didn't jump. That, that's what he would tell you. That's why he could play 500-plus consecutive games, something nobody but, but maybe Michael Bridges could ever do in this era. But Halliburton, again, hopefully he can get back from those injuries and be 100%. The Pacers need him. The Pacers just extended Miles Turner, so please knock off all the nonsense of everybody in the league just waiting to trade their players to the Lakers. Miles Turner's not going there. Sorry. Just like... Paul George and Kawhi Leonard weren't going there. Just like whoever else you wanted to trade for ain't going there. The Pacers are, I won't say all in, 
But the fact that they extended Miles Turner means they're at least somewhat in it and they like what they have. Again, with a Miles Turner, with somebody like Benedict Matherin, and with Tyrese Halliburton running that point guard position so well. So Pacers are a team to keep an eye on moving forward. But again, without Halliburton, all of it falls apart. So hopefully he's back soon. Love watching the man play. And that's my NBA update. One last final thing in the sports world. Novak Djokovic won his 10th Australian Open, uh, which is a major for tennis. And winning 10 of them is an accomplishment. Winning 10 of the same one is unheard of. Uh, He is in the GOAT discussion with Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer. Um, He's definitely the greatest hardcore tennis player of all time. Uh, The man's 35. He's kind of avoided any serious injury like Federer and Nadal have been dealing with. Uh, he's tied at 22 with Nadal for most majors ever uh, and on the men's side. Um, so, you know, watch out. Uh, he hasn't lost a match this year. So uh, he's coming out on fire this year, and uh, he could easily catch catch the 25 record. So uh, just a shout-out to him. He won in straight sets and completely dismantled this entire competition this year. Um, that's going to wrap it up for us on the Two Guys Four Balls podcast this week. Um, we'll be back uh, for the Super Bowl. We're not going to do a podcast for the Pro Bowl. And we'll go over all of our predictions and everything that we talked about at the beginning of the season and kind of how they plan- panned out since it'll be the end of the NFL season, unfortunately. It's going to be a sad day. It's going to be a happy day, but a sad day at the same time. Uh, so, again, please follow us at Two Guys Four Balls Podcast. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and we appreciate you guys listening. Thank you for listening to the Two Guys Four Balls Podcast.